Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. 
This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. Tonight, I have an Edgar Allan Poe short story for you that I think you're really going to like. But before we get to the bedtime reading, um, I just want to profoundly thank all of our brand new members on Patreon.com which is a website where you can pledge a couple bucks for an ad-free version of the show. So, this week's wonderful new patrons, Lucy Walsh, Sky Kennedy, Carol Walker, and Sharon McKellar. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. It really, really means a lot. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, these names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon, which is a website where you can directly support the people who make the shows that you like. So, if you like Sleepy, and maybe it's helped you get a better night's sleep, uh, maybe it's become part of your nightly routine, then consider going to patreon.com slash sleepyradio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. And like I said earlier, um, at $2, you get access to a ad-free version of Sleepy. And at $5, you get access to the exclusive poetry feed. Um, but no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you would like to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana. Well, tonight, um, with fall rolling around, even though it's pretty hot out, um, we are edging towards Edgar Allan Poe's season, October. Um, read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe on the show before almost exclusively around uh, Halloween. But, uh, you know, he was a very prolific writer. And he wrote a lot of short stories that all have that kind of poishness, um, slightly haunted, otherworldly quality to them. Um, but he was very prolific, and there's probably a lot of stories that, like me, you didn't know even existed. And, uh, this is one of those stories. Tonight, I'm going to be reading a story he wrote in, I believe it was 1860, 1831, and it's called Message Found in a Bottle. This is a kind of a surreal, otherworldly 
seafaring story with real Pirates of the Caribbean vibe. And um, yeah, it's uh, very rhythmic and kind of spooky and uh, you know, like all of Edgar Allan Poe's writing, it's just it's melodic and I think really great to go to sleep to. But I really enjoyed reading this story. So I really hope that you enjoy falling asleep to it. So without further ado, Message Found in a Bottle by Edgar Allan Poe. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Message Found in a Bottle by Edgar Allan Poe Of my country and of my family, I have little to say. Ill usage and length of years have driven me from the one and estranged me from the other. Hereditary wealth afforded me an education of no common order, and a contemplative turn of mind enabled me to methodize the stories which early study diligently garnered up. Beyond all things, the works of the German moralists gave me a great delight, not from my ill-advised admiration of their eloquent madness, but from the ease with which my habits of rigid thought enabled me to detect their falsities. I have often been reproached with the aridity of my genius. The deficiency of imagination has been imputed to me as a crime, and the pyrrhonism of my opinions has at all times rendered me notorious. Indeed, a strong relish for physical philosophy has, I fear, tinctured my mind with a very common error of this age. I mean, the habit of referring occurrences, even the least susceptible of such reference to the principles of science. Upon the whole, no person could be less liable than myself to be led away from the severe precincts of truth by ignis fatuae of superstition. I have thought proper to premise thus much, lest the incredible tale I have to tell should be considered rather than the raving of a crude imagination than the positive experience of a mind to which the reveries of fancy have been a dead letter and a nullity. After many years spent in foreign travel, I sailed one year from the port of Batavia in the rich and populous island of Java on a voyage to the archipelago of the Sunda Islands. I went as passenger, having no other inducement than a kind of nervous restlessness which haunted me as a fiend. Our vessel was a beautiful ship of about 400 tons copper-fastened and built at Bombay of Malabar Teak. She was freighted with cotton wool and oil, 
from the Lacadive Islands. We had also on board core, jaggery, ghee, coconuts, and a few cases of opium. The stowage was clumsily done, and the vessel consequently cranked. We got underway with a mere breath of wind, and for many days stood along the eastern coast of Java, without any other incident to beguile the monotony of our course than the occasional meeting with some of the small grabs of the archipelago to which we were bound. One evening, leaning over the taffrail, I observed a very singular isolated cloud to the northwest. It was remarkable, as well for its color, as from its being the first we had seen since our departure from Batavia. I watched it attentively until sunset, when it spread out all at once to the eastward and westward, girding in the horizon with a narrow strip of vapor and looking like a long line of low beach. My notice was soon afterwards attracted by the dusky red appearance of the moon and the peculiar character of the sea. The latter was undergoing a rapid change, and the water seemed more than usually transparent. Although I could distinctly see the bottom, yet, having the lead, I found the ship in fifteen fathoms. The air now became intolerably hot and was loaded with spiral exhalations similar to those arising from heated iron. As night came on, every breath of wind died away, and a more entire calm it is impossible to conceive. The flame of a candle burned upon the deck without the least perceptible motion, and a long hair, held between the finger and thumb, hung without the possibility of detecting a vibration. However, as the captain said, he could perceive no indication of danger, and as we were drifting in bodily to shore, he ordered the sails to be furled and the anchor let go. No watch was set, and the crew, consisting principally of Malays, stretched themselves deliberately upon deck. I went below, not without a full presentiment of evil. Indeed, every appearance warranted me in apprehending a Simone. I told the captain my fears, but he paid no attention to what I said, and left me without deigning to give a reply. My uneasiness, however, prevented me from sleeping, and about midnight I went upon deck. As I placed my foot upon the upper step of the companion ladder, I was startled by a loud humming noise, like that occasioned by the rapid revolution of a mill wheel, and before I could ascertain its meaning, I found the ship quivering to its center. In the next instant, a wilderness of foam hurled us upon our beam ends, and rushing over us, fore and aft, swept the entire decks from stem to stern. The extreme fury of the blast proved, in great measure, the salvation of the ship. Although completely waterlogged, yet, as her mass had gone by the board, she rose after a minute, heavily from the sea, 
and staggering a while beneath the immersive pressure of the tempest finally righted. By what miracle I escaped destruction, it is impossible to say. Stunned by the shock of the water, I found myself, upon recovery, jammed in between the stern post and the rudder. With great difficulty, I gained my feet, and looking dizzily around, was at first struck with the idea of our being among breakers. So terrific, beyond the wildest imagination, was the whirlpool of mountainous and foaming ocean within which we were engulfed. After a while, I heard the voice of an old Swede, who had shipped with us at the moment of leaving port. I hallooed to him with all my strength, and presently he came to reeling aft. We soon discovered that we were the sole survivors of the accident. All on deck, with the exception of ourselves, had been swept overboard. The captain and mates must have perished as they slept, for their cabins were deluged with water. Without assistance, we could expect to do little for the security of the ship, and our exertions were at first paralyzed by the momentary expectation of going down. Our cable had, of course, parted like pack thread at the first breath of the hurricane, or we should have been instantaneously overwhelmed. We scudded with frightful velocity before the sea, and the water made clear breaches over us. The framework of our stern was shattered excessively, and in almost every respect we had received considerable injury. But to our extreme joy we found the pumps unchoked and that we had made no great shifting of our ballast. The main fury of the blast had already blown over, and we apprehended little danger from the violence of the wind but we looked forward to its total cessation with dismay, well believing that in our shattered condition we should inevitably perish in the tremendous swell which would ensue. But this very just apprehension seemed by no means likely to be soon verified. For five entire days and nights, during which our only subsistence was a small quantity of jaggery Procured with great difficulty from the forecastle, the hulk flew at rate, defying computation, before rapidly seceding flaws of wind, which without equaling the first violence of the simoom, were still more terrific than any tempest I had before encountered. Our course for the first four days was, with trifling variations, southeast and by south and we must have run down the coast of New Holland. On the fifth day, the cold became extreme, although the wind had hauled round a point more to the northward. The sun arose with a sickly yellow luster, and clambered a very few degrees above the horizon, emitting no decisive light. There were no clouds apparent, yet the wind was upon the increase and blew a fitful and unsteady fury. About noon, as nearly as we could guess, our attention was again arrested by the appearance of the sun. It gave out no light, 
properly so called, but a dull and sullen glow without reflection, as if all its rays were polarized. Just before sinking within the turgid sea, its central fire suddenly went out, as if hurriedly extinguished by some unaccountable power. It was a dim, silver-like rim, alone as it rushed down the unfathomable ocean. We waited in vain for the arrival of the sixth day. That day, to me, has not arrived. To the Swede, never did arrive. Thenceforward, we were enshrouded in pitchy darkness, so that we could not have seen an object at twenty paces from the ship. Eternal night continued to envelop us, all unrelieved by the phosphoric sea brilliancy which we had been accustomed in the tropics. We observed, too, that although the tempest continued to rage with unabated violence, there was no longer to be discovered the usual appearance of surf or foam which had hitherto attended us. All around were horror and thick gloom and a black sweltering desert of ebony. Superstitious terror crept by degrees into the spirit of the old Swede, and my own soul was wrapped up in silent wonder. We neglected all care of the ship as worse than useless in securing ourselves as well as possible to the stump of the mizzenmast looked out bitterly into the whirl of the ocean. We had no means of calculating time nor could we form any guess of our situation. We were, however, well aware of having made farther to the southward than any previous navigators and felt great amazement at not meeting with the usual impediments of ice. In the meantime, every moment threatened to be our last. Every mountainous billow hurried to overwhelm us. The swell had surpassed anything I'd imagined possible, and that we were not instantly buried as a miracle. My companion spoke of the lightness of our cargo, and reminded me of the excellent qualities of our ship. But I could not help feeling the utter hopelessness of hope itself, and prepared myself gloomily for that death which I thought nothing could defer beyond an hour, as with every knot of way the ship made. The swelling of the black stupendous seas became more dismally appalling. At times we gasped for breath at elevation beyond the albatross. At times became dizzy with the velocity of our descent into some watery hell where the air grew stagnant and no sound disturbed the slumbers of the kraken. We were at the bottom of one of these abysses when a quick scream from my companion broke fearfully upon the night. See, see, cried he, shrieking in my ears. Almighty God, see, see. As he spoke, I became aware of a dull, sullen glare of red light which streamed down the sides of the vast chasm where we lay and threw a fitful brilliancy upon our deck. Casting my eyes upwards, I beheld a spectacle which froze the current of my blood. At a terrific height, 
directly above us, and upon the very verge of the precipitous descent, hovered a gigantic ship of perhaps 4,000 tons. Although unreared upon the summit of a wave more than a hundred times her own altitude, her apparent size still exceeded that of any ship of the line of East Indiamen in existence. Her huge hull was of deep, dingy black, unrelieved by any of the customary carvings of a ship. A single row of brass cannon protruded from her open ports and dashed from their polished surfaces the fires of innumerable battle lanterns which swung to and fro about her rigging. But what mainly inspired us with horror and astonishment was that she bore up under a press of sail in the very teeth of that supernatural sea and of that ungovernable hurricane. When we first discovered her, her bows were alone to be seen as she rose slowly from the dim and horrible gulf beyond her. For a moment of intense terror, she paused upon the giddy pinnacle, as if in contemplation of her own sublimity, then trembled and tottered and came down. At this instant, I know not what sudden self-possession came over my spirit. Staggering as far aft as I could, I awaited fearlessly the ruin that was to overwhelm. Our own vessel was at length ceasing from her struggles and sinking with her head to the sea. The shock of the descending mass struck her, consequently, in that portion of her frame which was nearly under water, and the inevitable result was to hurl me with irresistible violence upon the rigging of the stranger. As I fell, the ship hove in stays and went about, and to the confusion ensuing, I attributed my escape from the notice of the crew. With little difficulty, I made my way, unperceived, to the main hatchway, which was partially open, and soon found an opportunity of secreting myself in the hold. Why I did so, I can hardly tell. An indefinite sense of awe, which at first sight of the navigators of the ship had taken hold of my mind, was perhaps the principle of my concealment. I was unwilling to trust myself with people who had offered to the cursory glance I had taken so many points of vague novelty, doubt, and apprehension. I therefore thought proper to contrive a hiding place in the hold. This I did by removing a small portion of the shifting boards in such a manner as to afford me a convenient retreat between the huge timbers of the ship. I had scarcely completed my work when a footstep in the hold forced me to make use of it. A man passed by my place of concealment with a feeble and unsteady gait. I could not see his face, but had an opportunity of observing his general appearance. There was about it an evidence of great age and infirmity. His knees tottered beneath a load of years, and his entire frame quivered under the burthen. He muttered to himself, in a low broken tone, some words of language which I could not understand, and groped in a corner among a pile 
of singular-looking instruments and decayed charts of navigation. His manner was a wild mixture of peevishness of second childhood and the solemn dignity of a god. He at length went on deck, and I saw him no more. A feeling for which I have no name has taken possession of my soul, a sensation which will admit of no analysis to which the lessons of bygone time are inadequate, and for which I fear futurity itself will offer me no key. To a mind constituted like my own, the latter consideration is an evil. I shall never, I know that I shall never, be satisfied with regard to the nature of my conceptions. Yet, it is not wonderful that these conceptions are indefinite, since they have their origin and sources so utterly novel. A new sense, a new entity, is added to my soul. It is long since I first trod the deck of this terrible ship, and the rays of my destiny are, I think, gathering to a focus. Incomprehensible men, wrapped up in meditations of a kind which I cannot divine, they pass by me unnoticed. Concealment is utter folly on my part, for the people will not see. It was but just now that I passed directly before the eyes of the mate. It was no long while that I ventured into the captain's own private cabin and took thence the materials with which I write and have written. I shall from time to time continue this journal. It is true that I may not find an opportunity of transmitting it to the world, but I will not fail to make the endeavor. At the last moment, I will enclose the message in a bottle and cast it within the sea. An incident has occurred which has given me new room for meditation. Are such things the operation of ungoverned chance? I had ventured upon deck and thrown myself down, without attracting any notice, among a pile of rattling stuff and old sails in the bottom of the yawl. While musing upon the singularity of my fate, I unwittingly daubed with a tar brush the edges of a neatly folded studding sail which lay near me on a barrel. The studding sail is now bent upon the ship, and the thoughtless touches of the brush are spread out into the word discovery. I have made many observations lately upon the structure of the vessel. Although well armed, she is not, I think, a ship of war. Her rigging, build, and general equipment, all negative a supposition of this kind. What she is not, I can easily perceive. What she is, I fear is impossible to say. I know not how it is, but in scrutinizing her strange model and singular cast of spars, her huge size and overgrown suits of canvas, her severely simple bow and antiquated stern, there will occasionally flash across my mind the sensation of familiar things, and there is always mixed up with such indistinct shadows of recollection, an unaccountable memory of old foreign chronicles and ages long ago. 
I have been looking at the timbers of the ship. She is built of a material to which I am a stranger. There is a peculiar character about the wood which strikes me as rendering it unfit for the purpose to which it had been applied. I mean its extreme porousness, considered independently of the worm-eaten condition which is a consequence of navigation in these seas, and apart from the rottenness attendant upon age. It will appear, perhaps, an observation somewhat over-curious, that this wood would have every characteristic of Spanish oak, if Spanish oak were distended by any unnatural means. In reading the above sentence, a curious apothem of an old weather-beaten Dutch navigator comes full upon my recollection. It is as sure, he was wont to say, when any doubt was entertained of his veracity, as sure as there was a sea which the ship itself will grow in bulk like the living body of the seaman. About an hour ago, I made bold to trust myself among a group of the crew. They paid me no manner of attention, and although I stood in the very midst of them all, seemed utterly unconscious of my presence. Like the one I had at first seen in the hole, they all bore about them the marks of a hoary old age. Their knees trembled with infirmity, their shoulders were bent double with decrepitude, their shriveled skins rattled in the wind, their voices were low, tremulous, and broken. Their eyes glistened with the ram of years, and their gray hair streamed terribly in the tempest. Around them, on every part of the deck, lay scattered mathematical instruments of the most quaint and obsolete construction. I mentioned some time ago the bending of a studding sail. From that period, the ship, being thrown dead off the wind, was continued her terrific course due south, with every rag of canvas packed upon her, from her truck to her lower studding sail booms, and rolling every moment her top gallant yard arms into the most appalling hell of water which it can enter into the mind of man to imagine. I have just left the deck, where I find it impossible to maintain a footing, although the crew seem to experience little inconvenience. It appears to me a miracle of miracles that our enormous bulk is not swallowed up at once and forever. We are surely doomed to hover continually upon the brink of eternity, without taking a final plunge into the abyss. From billows a thousand times more stupendous than any I've ever seen, we glide away with the facility of the arrowy seagull, and the colossal waters rear their heads above us like demons of the deep, but like demons confined to simple threats and forbidden to destroy. I am led to attribute these frequent escapes to the only natural cause which can account for such effect. I must suppose the ship to be within the influence of some strong current or impetuous undertow. I have seen the captain face to face and in his own cabin, but, as I expected, he paid me no attention. 
although in his appearance there is, to a casual observer, nothing which might bespeak him more or less than man. Still, a feeling of irrepressible reverence and awe mingled with the sensation of wonder with which I regarded him. In stature, he is nearly my own height, that is, above five feet eight inches. He is of a well-knit and compact frame of body, neither robust nor remarkable otherwise. But it is the singularity of the expression which reigns upon the face. It is the intense, the wonderful, the thrilling evidence of old age so utter, so extreme, which excites within my spirit a sense, a sentiment ineffable. His forehead, although little wrinkled, seems to bear upon it the stamp of a myriad of years. His gray hairs are records of the past, and his grayer eyes are sibyls of the future. The cabin floor was thickly strewn with strange iron-clasped folios and moldering instruments of science and obsolete, long-forgotten charts. His head was bowed upon his hands, and he poured the fiery, unquiet eye over a paper which I took to be a commission, and which, at all events, bore the signature of a monarch. He muttered to himself, as did the first seaman whom I saw in the hole, some low, peevish syllables of a foreign tongue. And although the speaker was close at my elbow, his voice seemed to reach my ears from the distance of a mile. The ship and all that are in it are imbued with the spirit of Eld. The crew glide to and fro like the ghosts of buried centuries. Their eyes have an eager and uneasy meaning, and when their fingers fall athwart my path in the wild glare of the battle lanterns, I feel as though I have never felt before, although I have been all my life a dealer of antiquities, and have imbibed the shadows of fallen columns at Belbeck and Tadmor and Persepolis until my very soul has become a ruin. When I look around me, I feel ashamed of my former apprehensions. If I trembled at the blast which was hitherto attended us, shall I not stand against a warring of wind and ocean to convey any idea of which the words tornado and simoom are trivial and ineffective? All in the immediate vicinity of the ship is the blackness of eternal night and a chaos of foamless water. But, about a league on either side of us may be seen, indistinctly, and at intervals, stupendous ramparts of ice, towering away into the desolate sky, and looking like the walls of the universe. As I imagine, the ship proves to be in a current, if that appellation can properly be given a tide, which, howling and shrieking by the white ice, thunders on to the southward with a velocity like the headlong dashing of a cataract. To conceive the horror of my sensations is, I presume, utterly impossible. Yet a curiosity to penetrate the mysteries of these awful regions predominates even over my despair and will reconcile me to the most hideous aspect of death. 
it is evident that we are hurrying onwards to some exciting knowledge, some never-to-be-imparted secret, whose attainment is destruction. Perhaps this current leads us to the southern pole itself. It must be confessed that a supposition apparently so wild has every probability in its favor. The crew paced the deck with unquiet and tremulous step, but there is upon their countenance an expression more of eagerness, of hope, and of the apathy of despair. In the meantime, the wind is still in our deck, and as we carry a crowd of canvas, the ship is at times lifted bodily from the sea. Oh, horror upon horror. The ice opens suddenly to the right and to the left, and we are whirling dizzily in immense concentric circles, round and round the borders of a gigantic amphitheater, the summit of whose walls is lost in the darkness in the distance. But little time will be left for me to ponder upon my destiny. The circles rapidly grow small. We are plunging madly within the grasp of a whirlpool, and amid a roaring and bellowing and thundering of ocean and tempest, the ship is quivering, O oh God, and going down. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.